You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. In case you didn't notice, Jim's not here. I know, you didn't know, did you? Uh, before we get started, we'll pray here in, in just a moment. Uh, this is a topical survey. This is not our sort of normal exposition of a single passage. So I'll be going through a lot of different scriptures. I'll be going through them uh, in a manner that is too quick for you to keep up. So I put on the back there, the very back table... If uh, at the end you want to pick one of these up and do some further study, just a little piece of paper looks like that, and it lists all the verses. All right, so let's pray together. Father, our desire here is to glorify you, and the only way that we can do that is to speak the truth. Anything we say that's true about you automatically brings you glory, and anything we say that isn't diminishes your glory, and, and we won't do that. So, Father, I pray today that uh, anything that I say would be true, and anything that I don't, that that I say that isn't true, I pray that you would cause it not to be heard or to be quickly forgotten. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the title of the message today, if you see in your bulletin, is Sin and the Sovereignty of God. So we want to examine the scriptures today together to see what is the relationship of sin to God's sovereignty. Does he permit it? Does he permit sin? Does he ordain sin? Does he cause sin? All right, that's the question. So we're going to start with a definition of God's sovereignty. This is from A.W. Pink. Quote, the sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent, God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. So his own word expressly declares, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Daniel 4.35 Divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact, as well as in name, that he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will. That's Ephesians 1.11. I should probably stop there, right? I'm probably not going to do much better than that. We're going to dig into the scriptures. Uh, the pink quotes Ephesians 1.11, and that's the, the last verse of the passage that Cordell read today, and this is that verse. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul here tells us that our predestination, our election, our salvation, was worked according to the purpose of his will, and also that all things are, not just our election, our salvation, all things. God works or accomplishes or energizes all things according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 135, verse 6. Simple. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Psalm 115, 5. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Right? 
So I think we'd all agree here with the scripture. We'd, we'd grant God absolute sovereignty over all things, right? Strangely, not terribly controversial when you put it that way. In the abstract, everybody kind of agrees with it. They agree that God is sovereign over the conglomerate that we call all things. But not always as we break that apart. So we're going to break that all things apart a little bit today and understand exactly what the Scripture's declaration that God is sovereign over all things implies. And I think that you'll rejoice in this. I think that you'll glorify God in this. I think you'll get great comfort in it. So let's think briefly about one part of this conglomerate. Let's break it apart. God's sovereignty over nature. Think about God's sovereignty over nature. Now, very few Christians would object to saying that God is completely sovereign over nature. I don't know of any Christian who objects to that. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time proving it to you, but I want to talk about it a little bit because we can understand, we can learn some things that are applicable to other more controversial areas. So this is what Psalm 135, again, verses 6 and 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God claims sovereignty over natural processes, over storms and weather, those sorts of phenomena. And we see that, we know that. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God brought floodwaters on the earth. Uh, God parted the Red Sea. Okay? God is capable of having demonstrating control over weather. Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus walked on water. Jesus turned water into wine, healed disease and sickness. We know that God has sovereignty over nature. He's also sovereign not over, only over weather, inanimate nature, but also over plants and animals. Uh, it's, we know that God brought the animals to, to Adam. Remember that? He brought the animals to Noah. Um, he brought the raven to feed Elijah. Remember that story? But more than that, God claims sovereignty over the minute, average, everyday details of plant and animal life. We see that in Psalms. We see that clearly in Job. Uh, Job, when Job answers, or when God answers Job at the end, one of the things he claims is, I am sovereign over the events of everyday life and nature. He claims sovereignty over whether or not a lion hunt will be successful. He claims sovereignty over whether, when a mountain goat will give birth. He claims sovereignty over everything. God sent plagues on Egypt. I know a lot of the kids have been studying plagues. He used, what did he use? Water and blood and frogs and locusts and gnats. I'm forgetting stuff. Darkness, hail. He demonstrated his power over nature. He makes sunrise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He feeds the birds. He clothes the lilies of the field. He accounts for a sparrow. So we agree God is sovereign over all things. All of nature. Everything in nature. Big things. Movements of the tides and disasters and calamities. And even small things, right? Like the flight of a gnat in Pharaoh's palace. Controls that. So then there are two things that are implied by God's sovereignty over nature that we want to understand very carefully. They'll help us. Think about this. First of all, God brings not only natural events that we would consider good, right? But also those that we consider evil, bad. God's sovereign over all of it. And we can't step back from that. He uses nature to bring us pleasure and happiness, but also to bring us pain. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. 
I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Exodus 4.11 Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord claims sovereignty over that. Claims sovereignty over everything that happens in nature, good and bad. So good things like sunshine and rain and snow and bad things like sunshine sometimes, right? And rain and snow. He's sovereign over all of it. He brings a summer breeze and he brings a hurricane, a tornado. He brings a gentle rain and he brings a flood. Right? God is sovereign over all of it. Causes our hearts to beat, causes them to stop, causes children to be born, and causes cancers to grow. God is sovereign over all of it. All right, so that's the first thing to remember. The second, when we say that God is sovereign over natural causes, we say God is sovereign over nature, we're not denying that there are natural causes. Right? We say that God causes rain, for instance. We don't deny that there are natural processes that also cause rain. We know what those are. I don't, really. Condensation, water gets always high, cold, fall, gravity. I don't know. But people know. <laughs> you can do it in a lab, I guess. You can make rain in a lab. So we know there are natural processes that cause rain. But we would say that God causes every raindrop, wouldn't we? God determines its timing, its size, its velocity, its trajectory, determines who it's going to land on. Right? And yet we also agree that there are natural processes that cause those same things. This is the doctrine of concurrence. There are multiple causes. There's a divine cause and a natural cause in this case. There's no contradiction between them. God ordinarily uses a natural process to accomplish his will. But not always. Sometimes he acts supernaturally. He can do that. But ordinarily, he just uses natural processes. So we'd say nature acts naturally, and nature also acts according to God's Divine decree. Okay, okay, so far. Uh, God is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over all things. Good things and bad things. He uses natural processes, so natural processes cause things, and God causes things. Okay, simultaneously. We're okay with that, right? Okay, let's get a little closer to not being okay. Let's break something else out of it. Is God sovereign over human history? The large events of human history, wars, Elections, cultural movements, that kind of stuff. Is he sovereign over the affairs of nations? This is Acts 17, 24 through 26. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's determined the boundaries of nations and their time on the earth. He's determined these histories. So God clearly does control the histories. One way that he does it is by controlling who leads. This should be a comfort to you. If you watch debates, this should be a comfort to you. Daniel 4.25 The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Eh? God is in control of who leads. He's sovereign over human history. Remember, he raised up the Assyrians and the Babylonians against faithless Israel. He did that. He called Cyrus the Persian, his shepherd, to lead the people back. He's in control. 
Now, I don't want you to miss the implications of this. God caused Saul to be king, didn't he? He caused the Assyrians to invade, the Babylonians to invade. He caused uh, Nebuchadnezzar to be king. Remember, he deposed him and, and put him back. He caused Cyrus to be king. He caused Nero to be king, to be Caesar. He caused Hitler to rise to power. And Mao and Pol Pot and Saddam Hussein and the Ayatollahs and whoever else you want to put in that group. These are recorded. (laughs) God causes the actions of these leaders too. It's not just who it is, but also what they do. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord's in control. Well, that's a little uncomfortable, but we can agree with Scripture God is sovereign over nature. We agree that he's sovereign over the large events of human history, wars and elections, cultural movements. But what about individual human choices? Is God sovereign over the thoughts, words, choices of individual people? Well, saying that God is sovereign over nations implies that he's sovereign over individual human choice. It must be. The only way he could accomplish his purpose is by directing the choices of individual humans. I mean, consider an election. The way that he makes sure that the ruler that he wants to lead leads is by having us, in, in this case, vote as he would have us vote. He is sovereign over all things. All things. That's what Ephesians 1.11 said. Now think about this. I'm going to probably say this four times. If there's anything over which God does not exercise absolute sovereign control, it could not be said that he works all things according to his will. That would be impossible for him. All right? If there's, if there's something over which he is not sovereign, he is not sovereign. 99% sovereign is 0% sovereign. Okay? Romans 8.28. You all know Romans 8.28, I hope. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Look, if there's some human decisions that are outside of His control, Paul couldn't write that. And we could never believe it. It depends on God's sovereignty. Okay? All right. Scripture is very clear on this. Proverbs 20:24. 20, a man's steps are from the Lord. Proverbs 16:9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes or directs his steps. Jeremiah 10:23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. You see, we we make our decisions, right? We make our plans, we make our choices, and as far as we know, they're done completely freely without any compulsion from God. And that's all true. But God has planned and directed and is causing through us. See, we plan, we we think, we act, but it is God who has planned and who is now acting through those decisions. Okay, scripture contains commands. Right? I, want to, I want to be clear. Scripture contains commands. Saying that God controls human decision-making doesn't lead to fatalism. Our choices still matter. What we do matters. They have real, they're real choices and they have real impacts. We don't want to ever step off of that. That's, that's the truth. Scripture contains commands. 
God's issuing a command implies we have real choice. We do. Uh, Joshua 24.15, another famous verse. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Implies choice among alternatives. You have the choice. Our actions matter. Our prayers matter. Our choices have real consequences. Uh, Some of you are married. When you decided to get married, that was a real choice. Maybe not among a lot of good alternatives, but a real choice with real impacts, right? It has had significant impacts on people around you. It's a real choice. But yet God directed and planned and caused the choice. There's no conflict. Think of it this way. Go back to nature for a second. Does a storm have real effects? Does a storm have real effects? If you don't think so, you should come to my house. Storms knock trees over. They have real effects. Storms are real. They have real effects. They do real things. But is God sovereign over the storm? Of course. In the same way, our decisions have real effects, but God is sovereign over those decisions. Okay? Now, I know that raises some questions. It's very difficult to answer. It's a little bit mind-blowing. But God is like that. But I want to cut, I want to cut to the chase a little bit. There's a part of all things that is where we're most reluctant to accede to God, the sovereignty that He declares. And that is over sin. So how do we deal with that? Is God sovereign over sin? What does the scripture say about it? This is Genesis 45, familiar story of Joseph. So you kind of know where I'm going with this. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep, me, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Was God sovereign over the events of Joseph's life? All the events that led him to where he was? Well, Joseph thought so, didn't he? He says to God, you led me here. Now, did the brothers act sinfully in selling Joseph into slavery? Yeah, you, you know the story, right? They were covetous and murderous toward Joseph. They intended to kill him. Then they sold him into slavery. They sinned against him. And God was sovereign over their actions. God was sovereign over their sin. Right? That's the testimony of Scripture. Classic example, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then Exodus 9.12 says, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. God said, I would harden his heart and God hardened his heart. There's no denying it, the Lord hardened Pharaoh said he wouldn't, he did. He hardened his heart. In the midst of these terrible demonstrations of God's power, Pharaoh wouldn't relent. He wouldn't let the people go. Because God has hardened his heart. 
Now, you might object to that. Well, didn't Pharaoh harden his own heart? Didn't he? Yeah, he did. So what? Right? There's no conflict there. The Lord hardened Pharaoh and Moses hardened himself. Those two concurrent causes. God causes rain and natural precipitation process causes rain. No conflict. Right? But it does tell us that God was sovereign over his sin or the sin of Pharaoh. Two weeks ago, Jim mentioned Judas in John 17:12. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Remember that? Judas' betrayal of Christ was ordained by God. God used the sin of Judas to accomplish his purpose. He's sovereign over it. Uh, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, all those that took part in the crucifixion of Christ. Listen to this, Acts 4, 24 through 27. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All the events of the Passion Week, every single step in the torture and betrayal and murder of the Lord Jesus Christ was ordained by the hand of God. There were no surprises there. God's in control. Look, there's never been greater sins than these, ever. This is the arch crime of history, and God ordained it. God was sovereign over it. Right? Uh, John Frame, if any of you are familiar with John Frame, he's, he has a systematic theology. It's called the Doctrine of God. It's a good one. I've only read like minuscule part of it, but that part was good. The crucifixion of Jesus, this is from Frame, the crucifixion of Jesus could not have happened without sin, for he did not deserve death. For God to foreordain the crucifixion, he had to foreordain sinful actions to bring it about. Okay? And you might say, well, we're just talking now about the, the, these big events in history and God was sovereign over the sin. Well, First uh, Peter 2.8, last part of First Peter 2.8 is a, is a really good verse, and it's really what set me off on this recently, because I'm teaching First Peter to the teens. 1 Peter 2.8 says, They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They refers to unbelievers here in this verse. They disobey the word as they were destined to do. They disobey the word they sin as they were destined to do. God had destined them to the sin. Uh, the word destined or is sometimes translated appointed. It means to be set in place for a specific purpose or to be laid down in place, to be set and they were set for that purpose. Right? No denying it. Okay, now we need to be delicate with this. Be careful how we say this. We don't want to say anything untrue about God. So how do we, how do we choose our words? If, we, if we're willing to say, and I think the scripture is very clear on this, that God is sovereign over sin, we have to be very careful to make sure that we understand God never sins, and God never is to blame for sin. He's not responsible for sin. All right? So how do we say this appropriate? Is God the author of sin? Would we say that? I'm going to read you a little bit from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, this was written in 1646. 
So the language is not modern. So try to, it's hard to understand, to be honest with you. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence or sovereignty that it extendeth itself even to the first fall. So God's sovereignty extends even to the fall of man and all other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, not by just permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding, right, setting limitations, and ordering and governing of them. God, God is, in other words, involved in the details. God has ordained the details. In a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature. The sinfulness proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, never from God. Who being holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. All right. So they reject the term author. Although they would confess that God's sovereignty extends to all sin, they reject the term author. And it's because it seems to be connected with the idea of approver. Okay? Of sin. And God is not an approver of sin. It may also be connected with the idea of blame. We don't want to say that God is the author of sin. If the term author in your mind implies blame, then you don't want to use it. Right? God never sins, and God is never to blame for sin. Again, this is from Frame. God does, God does bring about sinful human actions. To deny this or to charge God with wickedness on account of it is not open to a Bible-believing Christian. Somehow we must confess both that God has a role in bringing evil about and that in doing so he is holy and blameless. I think very clear, this is Luke 22:22, 22, 22, words of Christ. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You see that? The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. The sin is under God's sovereign control. But woe to the man who betrays him. Woe, blame, accountability goes to the sinful moral actor always, not to God. Right? So we don't want to use the term author because it may imply some sort of blame. Now, is it okay to say God permits or allows sin? That's what we do a lot of times. Well, God allows sin. And we say that because we want to get God off the hook, right? He just allows it. That's it. He doesn't ordain it. He doesn't control it. He just, he just allows it. Well, is that, is that accurate to say that God allows sin? Sure, yeah. It, but it's weak. It, it doesn't say enough. It's like uh, Jesus was a good teacher. Right, true, but not near enough. Right, God not only allows sin, He ordains it. Right, he must. Think about it. If God allows it but does not ordain it, he just permits it, but he doesn't control it, he's not sovereign over it, he doesn't ordain it, what does it imply about God? Right? It, it, it must imply one of two things. He's either incapable of accomplishing his purpose, maybe because he's too weak or because he, he lacks knowledge. I hate to even say that. right? Or it could be that he has no purpose. He has no intent that he wants to make sure that he's in sovereign control over it. That's a completely unbiblical Arminian premise. It leads to heretical theologies like open theism. Okay, 
So that has to be rejected. To say that God permits it but is not sovereign over it, doesn't control it, has to be rejected. So is it right to say God causes sin? I've said that a few times. If, if you can separate cause from blame, if you can say that God causes sin but he's not to blame for it, if that's okay in your mind, then you can use the term. If not, if cause necessarily implies blame, don't use it. How about ordains? God ordains sin. In practical modern English, ordains and causes don't have a real distinction. But the word seems to imply a certain majesty and separateness. So it's okay to use, so long as we aren't saying God ordains sin, meaning he set this, this whole plan in place and it includes some sin, and then he walked over here and ignored the universe. We're not deists. Okay? God is sovereign and in control. Well, more importantly, what language does the Bible use? Does it say God ordains or God... Well, you've seen some of the words. It uses words like destined, predestined, appointed, decided what happened. Uh, uses words to mean set boundaries, limitations, set someone in place. But most often, by far, it just uses the word to say what God has done through the heart of the sinful moral actor. Like God hardened Pharaoh. That's how God did this. God hardened Pharaoh. That's the term that it uses. God incited David to take that census, which was sin. Incited. God hardened the hearts of the Canaanites. God sent the Assyrian army. He brought the Babylonian army. He bestows power. He frustrates plans. God rules. God knows and God does. In Scripture, God simply claims that he exercises control over sin through the heart of the moral actor. Okay? So however we speak of it, we have to, we have to make sure that we are agreeing with Scripture, we are declaring God's absolute sovereignty over everything, including sin. And we also have to be very careful that we're not blaming God for sin. Okay? All right. Lastly, and I say lastly, that, make, that makes you think that you got like 30 seconds to go, but you don't. <laughs> Sorry. Lastly, no I'm not. Lastly, how is it that God causes sin, but he's not to blame for it? If a human being causes sin, he's to blame for it. Even if he causes it through somebody else, he's still to blame for it. A gang leader is still responsible, right? Even if he's not the one committing the crime. Why isn't God? Here's here's what John Calvin says. A very interesting quote from John Calvin. But how, how it was ordained by the foreknowledge and decree of God what man's future was, without God being implicated as associate in the fault, as the author and approver of transgression is clearly a secret, so much excelling the inside of the human mind that I am not ashamed to confess ignorance. You can read a lot of John Calvin and you won't find him confessing ignorance very often. That wasn't his style, right? But here he does. How can God be sovereign over sin and yet not, as he says, be implicated as associate in the fault? How can he not be to blame for sin? Uh, That's beyond the inside of the human mind. And that's ultimately true. He never explains himself. God doesn't doesn't have to. He never explains himself or justifies himself. He does give an answer to the question. Okay? It's not an explanation or justification, but it's an answer. And we're going to look at that in Romans 9. And so now you can turn to Romans 9 because this is where we'll be. So that was introduction. Not really. <laughs> Romans 9, and we'll start with verse 14. We'll read 14 through 18 to start. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So verse 17 tells us, he, he raised, that God raised up Pharaoh, he put Pharaoh in place, and he hardened him against the pleadings of Moses. Right? So he's declaring his sovereignty over the sinful acts of Pharaoh. Why? So that his power and compassion and mercy might be proclaimed. Uh, he, he says, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed. Right? Was God's power demonstrated because of the sin of Pharaoh? Yeah. Right? The plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. Power. We see God's power. We glorify Him through that. Was, was God glorified in the crucifixion of Christ and that, in that, all the sin that happened in the crucifixion of Christ? Yeah. Was God glorified by saving you? Why? Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is so glorified through the story of redemption, isn't He? We see His justice and His mercy, His wisdom and His grace through the Gospel. But the story of redemption includes both sin and salvation. Sin is necessary in that to glorify God through the story of redemption. So part of the answer, and you see it's not a complete answer, but part of the answer is that God can use the sin in a sinless way in order to glorify Himself, to bring good. That's not a complete answer because He still doesn't answer the question of how is it that God can be sovereign over sin, that He can ordain sin, but yet not be responsible for it. How is that possible? Well, he gives the rest of his answer. In Romans 9, 19-21, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? That's the question, isn't it? How does he find fault with a sinful moral actor when we know that it is his sovereign will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? That's his answer. How does God ordain sin without being tainted with it? Without being responsible for it? Without being to blame for it? Why does he find fault with the sinner when he ordains sin? No one can resist his will. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's the answer. We don't get to ask that question. Right? None of your business. That's what it comes down to. This is the lesson of the book of Job. If you read the book of Job, God says at the end in his long answer, which is just floors Job, right? And, and all the, the friends. Part of it is this. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? That's what God says to them. Right? It's ridiculous, isn't it? There's the answer. In the parable of the workers of the vineyard, Matthew 20, you know the parable where the workers come at different times of the day and they all get paid the same at the end. Uh, the, the landowner says this, representative of God, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? That's the answer. There's the answer. Look, we are responsible for our own sin. 
We choose it willingly, don't we? We're not compelled to sin. We choose it willingly. And we are subject to God. Okay, We are subject to God. He is our God. He is our Master. He is our King. God is accountable to no one. To whom would God give an account? He has no King. He has no Master. He has no God. There's no one to whom He must answer. And He doesn't. And He won't. God will never stand trial in a human court. Never. Listen to these atheist debates about whether God exists. Who cares what they think? God doesn't. Alright? Job 1.21. This ought to be, this is our response to sin. The Lord gave, remember what happened to Job. It was natural processes that happened to Job and also sinful things that happened to Job. Alright, his family was killed. Job 1.21. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 2.10, then his wife said, his wife, Job's wife, men, you all have great wives. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Thank you for your support. But he, he, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Listen to this, great verse. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. God is sovereign over all things, all things in nature, all human and angelic decisions and actions, even sinful ones. But God is not to blame for sin. He never sins. He's not responsible for it. So why would I teach this? I, I could have taught anything. Right? It's a one, one-time deal. I could have done anything. Why this? A few reasons. One, it is, I think it is clearly taught in Scripture, and it's one of those doctrines that we we don't always want to confront, and many of us don't. But we need to. We need to. It gives God glory to declare His absolute sovereignty over all things. But from a more, uh, I guess, pastoral perspective, if we de- deny God's absolute sovereignty, what does that mean? Right? What is your life like? It's full of uncertainty, isn't it? It's fearsome. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Not one. If God isn't, if God isn't sovereign over sin, how can you trust Him? He, he, he has no power. If He's not sovereign over sin. He can't control it. Right? If God is not sovereign, if God is not sovereign over every single thing, then He is assuredly in control of nothing at all. And that's fearsome. That's a terrible way to live your life. Okay, but we can declare with confidence that God is in absolute control of every single thing that happens to you. So whatever you go through, whether it's caused by nature, and you can declare God's sovereignty over that, or it's caused by some human sin against you, or even your own, you can still declare God's sovereignty in that and look to Him. Look, anything you ever go through in life, anything you ever go through in life, you can hold on to two facts. God is sovereign, and God is good. And that's enough. Let's pray.
Father God, indeed you are sovereign over all things. Uh, you're sovereign over us being here today. You had a reason for this. And so, Father, we, we want to give you glory today. Uh, we want to give you glory for your power. We want to give you glory for your just absolute sovereign wisdom and control over all things. That we never deny that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.